For July 31st, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 474. I didn't blow up the planet. The system blew up the planet. Welcome back to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends, but from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together, watching movies, watching TV, listening to music, reading books. Yep, we still read books. Wouldn't know it to, to uh, read what we write on the site, but we still do it from time to time. And uh, enjoying cultural and, and, and entertainment, all sorts. And then uh, this is the crucial step, hanging out together and talking it all over. I'm Matt Rather from Los Angeles, and I am here talking over some stuff with my friends Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matthew. Pete's in Boston, and from New York, Mark Lee. Bonjour, Matthew. All right. Feeling a little French today. (laughs) Oh, a little French. Pourquoi? Now, guys, I was thinking, I was planning for this podcast, and I thought, could we do this podcast with one planet? Then I thought, nah. Could we do this podcast with two planets? Nah. And then just to skip to the end of this bit, I thought, you know what this podcast needs? A thousand planets. So we are talking about Valerian and the city of a thousand planets. Uh, If you haven't seen the film, don't... Don't see it? Is that <laughs> well, what you're saying? <laughs> I don't know. I was, I, was, I was vacillating between don't and you don't have to. And, and right. don't, if you don't feel a strong inclination, if you are not a you know, huge Fifth Element fan or something like that, uh, uh, or you know, a, a Luc Besson fan generally, uh, and you also don't have to, to uh, appreciate our podcast in this movie. There's nothing spoiler worthy uh, in this film we're going to talk about it all, and whatever you feel would have felt about this film, not knowing any of the details, I guarantee you, you will feel exactly the same about it, <laughs> knowing all of the details uh, that we're going to talk about on on this podcast. So, uh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, which is uh, an adaptation of the series of comic books called Valerian and Laureline. I think uh, the the change in title is telling, uh, and it reflects sort of a weakness in the focus of the movie, but more of that later. Here's the thing. The reviews of this movie had some very strong things to say. It's like a, a crystal meth mushroom. There were a lot of drug references. It's mushroom trips, psychedelic. It's like the fifth element taken to the nth degree. It's like someone put all of contemporary science fiction, creature stuff, adventure stuff in a blender and extruded a thick paste of visionary you know, Ridley Scott-esque, George Lucas-esque, uh, uh, concentrated uh, feeding paste and shoved it down your throat like you're a uh, foie gras duck of sci-fi action. And Your uh, eyes will beg for mercy, a literal quote that came across <laughs> our transom. Right, your eyes will, will beg for, for mercy, right? Um, and then, so the first one of us to watch this film was Pete. You, Pete watched it last uh, last week, and he had some very strong things to say about the the second act of the movie. Strong things, like strong opinions. Um, and and not to get into them just yet. There there will be time for that because we definitely should. But uh, just the the salient detail for the point that I'm trying to make uh, is that they were strong opinions. And then I watched the movie, and I thought. Oh, that was a movie. And that was about it. Like, I I did not have strong reactions to anything uh, in particular in in this film. I thought it was neither particularly visionary nor particularly pathbreaking. The the story was not particularly good. Um, I don't think it was particularly bad either. And and Pete, you and I may differ in that respect because uh, I think you think it was bad in certain places. But the the um, my my reaction was one of great befuddlement, wondering why people uh, had strong feelings, why this film inspired any kind of 
strong reaction at all uh, in people. So I, I don't know, Pete, you had a strong reaction to it. Like what, 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 what the hell? I mean, I had what the hell? <laughs> explain yourself. I had a couple of strong reactions. The one that you guys heard the most about were my feelings about the second half of the movie. I had a really strong reaction to the first 15 or 15 minutes of the movie or so, which are great. And I would put up there on a sort of top 10 list of underappreciated movie openings of all time in a heartbeat, just because I actually wept at the beginning of this movie. Up there, up there with R.I.P.D. Yeah, right up there with R.I.P.D. Exactly. R.I.P.D. And then every Pixar movie ever uh, is, is how this works. And uh, but then before, I, I before the titles, you mean, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, because for those of you who haven't seen the movie, the movie starts with a montage of the development of human interaction with first with uh, in space. It's about humans building space stations and the space, the growing space station is a uh, symbol of humanity's expanding uh, association with and reconciliation with other groups of humans. Like it's it's like there. This is my group of people. Presumably they're European. It's like a, the International Space Station, and it starts with them shaking hands with the Chinese, and moves on to them shaking hands with like other people, and then eventually you start shaking hands with aliens, and uh, and the space station grows and grows and grows and becomes this huge symbol of you know galactic love and cooperation, and it's all to the tune of uh, the David Bowie song. Is it called Major Tom? Is that the title of it? Or is that was a space oddity? Or space what oddity, you? yeah. Space oddity. The David Bowie song, Space Oddity. And, and it's lovely. It's great. And it doesn't have much to do with the rest of the movie at all. But it's great. Uh, and I had strong feelings about that. But, but to back it up a little bit, really for me, the context for my strong feelings about Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, is I was hoping for the second coming of the Chronicles of Riddick. That was what I wanted. (laughs) When I first heard of this movie, and I first realized that this movie was up against Dunkirk, which I knew was going to be a darling of everybody who saw it, uh, for the most part. Like, all the dudes who saw this movie were going to be like, wow, this movie's great. And then all the women who saw the movie would be like, there are no women in this movie. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) And the dudes would be like, I'm socially conditioned to not care about that, and and, uh, that's probably a problem, but I'm not going to worry about it right now. Um, That kind of thing old Christopher Nolan cocktail uh, as, as it is slugged down every so often. Uh, I knew that this was going to be up against Dunkirk. I expected Dunkirk to head into its opening weekend tremendously hyped up with a huge consensus that this was the movie to see. And then I expected Valerian to get clobbered and destroyed at the box office, despite being a very expensive movie based on a pretty storied and like legit sci-fi source material. Right? You know, And so I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a movie that everybody, nobody's going to even entertain the possibility of seeing this movie and then i'm gonna see it and i'm gonna have moments of unexpected enjoyment from this movie in the midst of its sort of general unpolishedness and then i'm gonna have a little sort of private relationship with it that i'll be able to share with my friends which is how i feel about the chronicles of riddick uh, the uh the second and least of the riddick movies uh it's just it's just so huge and clunky but at the same time it's really endearing it because it doesn't seem to have a sense of quality uh that is really aspiring to it allows things to slip by that would have otherwise been cut out of the movie there's lots of little moments that i really like but you have to take the good with the bad that's what i expected from valerian what, instead, what happened is that going into the weekend, I felt like the week heading up to Dunkirk, Dunkirk really kind of went down in – or even the weeks heading up to Dunkirk, it was not hyped. Dunkirk, I didn't see ads for it all over the place. I didn't feel this big surge of really powerful fixation on the – that Dunkirk was coming. Instead, I started to see a lot more press coverage of Valyrian and people talking about Valyrian, and then I was like, oh – Okay, so this is going to be a movie that everybody is going to want to see, and it's just going to be bad. (laughs) And at that point, I felt betrayed and sad. And my exposition, even though what I thought was going to be in the movie was not going to be any different, my relationship with the movie did like a 180 in like about a week and a half. And I did. Now, what happened is that after Dunkirk came out, everybody reacted exactly how I expected them to react to Dunkirk, and everybody reacted to Valyrian the way that you've described, with with a combination of confusion and disappointment, I would say. Uh, and um, 
and and I went to see it, you know, by myself in a theater that in the middle of a Sunday was was much more heavily populated than it was for King Arthur: Legend of the Sword. Let me tell you, <laughs> but uh, but not as much as for Beauty and the Beast. But uh, but yeah, but but that was the thing is I had a whole journey expecting something from this movie, and then I saw the movie, and at first it was like, yes, this this movie is actually going to be better than you expected. The haters are going to be wrong. It's going to be it's going to be like Ang Lee's Hulk. It's going to be beautiful and sublime, and people are going to hate it for reasons that don't matter to you. Uh, and, and then that's going to be you're going to have a relationship with it that way. And then as it proceeded, it started out that way, and then as it proceeded, it's like, oh, oh. Oh, and my expectations for it just sort of tumbled down, and I felt betrayed again. So it was a rough. I mean, me and Valerian had a rough time over the course of the last few weeks, and that's the context for why I had such strong feelings. I mean, that's a, that, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Also, the the second act is kind of a cluster f. Uh, oh yeah. J- yeah. Just just in terms of politics and representation and whatnot, but uh, and and the third act too, for for what it's worth. Yeah. I mean, really throughout. But um, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. The way because because that story is about. It's not even about the content of, of a movie. It's about the kind of the, the instrumental effects of the film. You know what I mean? And the way you think you're going to feel about the movie. Does that, I mean, does that make sense? And that oh, yeah. like the relationship that you think that not only you think you're going to have with the art itself, but the relationship you think you're going to have with the kind of positioning of the work in the larger culture and the way you can leverage that to um, to have relationships with your uh, to have relationships with your friends or not have relationships with your friends if they don't like the the kinds of movies that you like, you know. <laughs> well, that's what a good counterexample. That's why you it. Go yeah. for it. <laughs> I, mean, I would add to this uh, same conversation uh, along the lines of Chronicle of Riddick, right? The Triple X movie that we all recently saw, and like you know, we're, we're pretty hyped up with, and everybody else dumped on it uh, for their own reasons, but uh, we saw it. We enjoyed it. We uh, and it kind of reinforced uh, all those social signifiers that you were just talking about, man. Right? Yeah. I mean, cer- certainly, I definitely like a little bit. I don't know a little bit. If you don't understand that there's something more going on in the Fast, it's actually the reboot of the Fast and the the uh, the Fast and the Furious franchise, the Fastiverse, right? That has led. Um, led to, I think, a kind of renewed underappreciation of what's going on in those often very profound um, uh, films. And and uh, but but this is not the this is not the time um, to to talk about Fast and the Furious. If you want to talk about Fast and the Furious, see literally every other episode of the Overthinking It podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, we are here to bury Valerian, not to praise it. <laughs> not, we are here to bury Valerian, not to yeah. praise the Fast. In the fury. <laughs> but before we start to dig into the uh, some of these things more substantively, can I just quickly uh, talk about my sort of oh, yeah. r- strong feelings or lack thereof? For yes, yeah, please. Movie? Sorry, I didn't mean to. I, I thought you were with me more or less. Uh, yeah, I, I am. But uh, it's a couple things I want to specifically point out. One, and I, we sort of skated around this, but I want to make it very clear: the trailers for this movie were astounding. I thought mm-hmm. they inspired strong feeling for me, and I, I'm a kind of person who watches a lot movie trailers. I just like the form. Uh, the the of of them, I think it's a whole art form unto itself, and I like just the quick two and a half action packed uh, punch that you get, a uh, little little uh, gold uh, bullion cube of uh, of entertainment that you get from a movie trailer, and uh, the various trailers and promotional materials for Valerian really uh, sold quite well. The visual scope and spectacle of the movie, and teased that and promised a good time with two leads who might be charismatic and i reacted pretty strongly to that um the visuals were there the leads uh were not charismatic or the 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 female lead was more charismatic than the male lead who was a wet noodle um but the one thing that i ultimately did uh what do you mean uh, he was a wet wet noodle mark what do you mean man come on i I care about you so much why would you say that about me i don't understand i'm saying i'm saying i'm saying i didn't like this playlist this playlist was kind of lame Um, Do you know that guy is 30? What? (laughs) That's a strong reaction. Okay, so the the thing that was in the movie that that, the thing that that was in the movie that I reacted strongly to, of all things, was Clive Owen's professional wrestling gold breastplate, (laughs) which he does for Clive Owen is the commander, like some important leader guy who was later revealed to be the bad guy, the big bad in the movie. Um, he uh, he has this important political rank on the space station, and before a big meeting, for reasons that are I believe are not explained at all for the story, he puts on this awesome-looking gold <laughs> breastplate. It looks like 
what a professional wrestler would wear, you know, for a, for a title belt, except it goes on like, you know, neck down to like the midsection of the chest. It looks amazing. It's like it has like a that piece of Terry Gilliam set because it's got like <laughs> gears and chains and like yeah. Outremont. Yeah, no, it's it. like a it's like a steampunk Cleopatra necklace or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like that's the kind of visual imagination that I was really going for, really wanted in this movie. And there's something as well about just like particular color palette that was being painted there. The green uniform, the ridiculously large hat, Clive Owens' face, like you know, poor man's uh, Harrison Ford, and then the big gold plate. It all came together in this wonderful gel uh, of, of sights and spectacle and, and, and humor and self-linking that I thought was lacking from, uh, from most of the rest of the movie. Clive Owen, so I like that. The, Clive Owen was the Tilda Swinton. Of- yeah, absolutely. Ty, Clyde yeah. Owen, Clive Owen, an excellent actor, totally misused uh, yeah. <laughs> in, this, in this thing. So, okay, so it sounds like we all felt a, a little confounded by our expectations. Uh, our expectations were a little confounded. And we we ended the thing uh, a little disappointed. Um, there there are a number of ways to go as we sort of parse the meaning of this film because it's a lot of things. It's a, a buddy cop movie. It's a romance, like an office romance kind of movie. Uh, it's an adventure thing, but. Here's the problem with your weak ass critiques of capitalism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, wow. I wish I wish the heat today, man. <laughs> Bring in the heat. I really I wish we were doing overthinking it after dark cuz I sweat like I can feel the four letter words just bubbling up out of me. <laughs> like uh, you know, like the jellyfish in the Anyway, um when you pin the sins of the society on one Clive Owen shaped scapegoat, your movie loses all credibility as a critique of capitalism and as a critique of exploitation and all of these things that we can agree are bad, right? Like, it's not Clive Owen's fault, it's everybody's fault, right? Like, you want to make... System, the system's fault? Is that what <laughs> this is the Nino Brown defense. Like, I didn't blow up the planet, the system blew up the planet. <laughs> right? Like, what the hell, you know, making one guy... Making one guy the scapegoat, you know, even metaphorically, it doesn't it doesn't work. Right. Like the the uh, I, I don't know. Like and this is this is a sort of film. I mean, I, uh, Serenity does it a lot more successfully in the Firefly universe where like, uh, oh, my God, so, Soylent Green is people, you know, or the like we did it. We do. We did the bad thing. The bad, th- the bad thing is actually a consequence of our of our decisions and of our lifestyle. See also the last what three seasons of Star Trek, uh, the Next Generation, when you know it turns out that the warp drive pollutes the the world or the the fabric of something something. I don't know that that wasn't super strong either. But right, like and uh, and the good ones managed to. Uh, the good ones kind of managed to convey the kind of the Marxian, um, you know, sense of, of historical inevitability, which is, I think, one part of of that critique that that maybe remains still still relevant, right? Like, if it's a problem with agency, if it's a problem with bad actors, and I don't mean, I'm not calling a, uh, I mean, the character is a bad actor in the, uh, you know, uh, in the sense of having no good faith. Not that Clive, Clive Owen is a good actor, just he is a yeah. Tilda Swinton level, uh, <laughs> you know, um, artist. And uh, I, you know, commend you to to add the rest of his resume. Um, if if the problem is bad actors, we can get rid of the bad actors, or we can find, you know, yeah. what I mean. Like if the problem is contingent, we can find some sort of uh, way to deal with it in a contingent fashion. But but if the problem is intrinsic to uh, the society, right? Which is, I think, the thing that that the film was trying to get at, but not really able to it's a much uh it's a much harder uh it's a much harder problem so that's the problem with your weak ass (laughs) critiques of capitalism it's just to be clear it's a harder problem and a more interesting story to tell than what we got in this movie i think is what you're getting at right matt yeah that's what i'm trying yeah yeah yeah. okay so before before we start to unpack this more i want to kind of rewind a little bit uh, to cash out the metaphor a little bit for those who haven't seen the movie right and we go back actually to the really moving intro sequence that pete was talking about earlier right which is that you know this is uh mankind's future in the stars we reconcile uh, ourselves within humanity and by the way it's worth noting that the first 
thing you see in that montage is the Americans, the Soviets meeting together, right? And then further on is this hypothetical meeting of the Americans or the the, the white people and the Chinese because uh, this is a Chinese co-production and all that kind of nonsense. Yeah. Um, and then so on and so forth until uh, Alpha, the space station, the city of a thousand planets, becomes this metaphor for multiculturalism, diversity, um, living together in harmony, right? Yeah, um, and it's and like that Babylon Five made into a Dave and Buster's. It's like uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, it's like Zootopia in space. <laughs> so that fundamental premise there is undermined in weird and confusing ways, most primarily by uh, Clive Owen being the, uh, the the establishment guy who committed genocide. And then also, but all the weird talk about the civil uh, um, uh, civil rights and uh, dignity of the uh, of the indigenous people in the second half of the movie, which Pete had a big problem with. Um, right. So it, it was just this. It presented this very confusing political message. Like it was trying hard to get there. Oh, the other important thing before I turn it over is that um, the the their Valerian and Laureline, how they get home um, after the blue Avatar people uh, escape to freedom is that they come back in a roughly 2000-era contemporary spaceship that looks like the Apollo capsule, um, which is supposed to is meant to somehow indicate that Valerian and Laureline are the inheritors of the legacy of um, space flight that, you know, that uh, we, ideal, we, we idealize in our current generation and uh, were perfected in the shape of Alpha. But Alpha also has this thing going on where it might be rotten to the core. This is this, uh, offhand mentioned that the economy is collapsing with that I believe does not factor into the rest of the movie at all. And then the <laughs> other two big problems as well. So that is my kind of broad sketch for those who haven't seen the movie of the political message, uh, or at least the, the sort of the socioeconomic pieces of it. Pete, uh, does that ring true to you? Yeah, sure. And I might as well add the thing that we've talked a couple times, and I won't go into huge detail on it, but in the second act of the movie, one of the most confounding parts of it is that every... (laughs) (laughs) The most confounding part of the movie is, uh, for me, is that there's a... It must be some sort of classic scene out of a comic book, because I can't understand what would have possessed them to make this scene if it didn't already... This whole sequence, this whole part of the movie, if it didn't already exist, uh, which is that... In the space station, which is has a giant, it's a whole bunch of different habitats where different alien creatures all live in their own. Ho- it's not like Babylon Five in the sense that people get dressed in different outfits and go to meetings together. Everybody has kind of their own biome that they live in, and yes, people socialize in sort of grand promenades, but they also all have their own part where it's like, oh, here we all live in the woods, here we all live in the water, so on and so forth. And there's like a place where horrible racist caricatures of like afro-polynesio caribbean savages live and and like and i and i say it very broadly because it just sort of seems like a very shotgunned condemnation of like a whole bunch of different kinds of people all of whom are united in the sense that they are not white uh because there's these big fat dark-skinned aliens who for some reason are allowed to live in a part of the space station where no other people are allowed and where they can fish like by using space fish hooks for other living sentient beings and eat them, <laughs> right? Like they, they will. So what happens is they, they capture Laureline, the the female buddy cop, the Danny Glover of this movie. They capture her and like make her dress up in a pretty dress and seem unable to comprehend what she's saying to them, and then like are going to feed her to their chieftain. As a as a feast. Now, this is a head of state living at the United Nations. This is this is and this is a federal government uh, operative of like the gendarmerie, gendarmerie, military police, right? Like this is this is a she. The only reason she doesn't kill all of them is because it would cause a diplomatic incident, and that's what she says. But they seem unconcerned at all with the role of diplomacy, with language, right, with anything. And it's just like hard, and, and it ends with Valerian just killing all of them, just slaughtering them. And, and and I mean, and the whole thing about Valerian meeting Rihanna, the stripper blob, and wearing Rihanna. Like Valerian has to go to a strip club run by Ethan Hawke, and Rihanna is there, and Rihanna is a stripper, space alien shapeshifter who puts her. He literally has to wear a black skin in order to go into the black people's place, where he yeah. then murders yep. all the black people. And it is just, I mean, it is the word problematic doesn't even begin 
to describe it. It is like straight up like 1920s racist, and 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 I hated it. I hated every minute of it. And and when it was over, and everybody who was introduced in that part of the movie was dead, the movie continued as if it had never happened, which raises the question of why it had to happen in the first place. And, and it just ruined everything that the movie had going for it for me at the time. Just there's just this just the condemnation of it and the savagery and the caricature and the way that bodies were employed and the way that like violence was celebrated and and it, in the spirit of everything that was happening i i just thought it was disgusting and i hated it so i hated that part of the movie uh much more than the rest of the movie which i either loved or liked for the I, most part. now this this uh it um it improved on the well, i'm not sure if it improved or didn't improve on the uh force awakens um scene uh where a woman of color voices a uh voices a cgi character uh Mos- <laughs> in in that uh the woman of color was allowed to appear on screen as a sexual object for a few seconds before yes. disappearing entirely uh you know and and becoming um uh becoming not only subservient but but happily uh yeah. and and proudly subservient yep. Uh, and dying and being okay with it yep. because she died in the instrumental pursuit of what the white people needed. Yep. And she was she was happy. And it just was disgusting. I just I mean and I don't I try to resist the knee jerk reactions like that to things just because uh, there's just it's so endemic. You know, race structural racism is so endemic to our culture that uh, you know you can see it everywhere because it is everywhere and it's also in you. And so like when you see it, it's not necessarily always clear whether it's something that's in the thing that you're looking at or whether it's in you. Or whether the difference is not important when you're talking about readership cultures, right? So it's like I'm not one of those people who tries to like really draw it out everywhere I see it, partially because I'm from a relatively privileged position and don't have to. <laughs> and, and so like that's kind of a moral failure on my part uh, in accordance with what a lot of people would say. But this like really jumps out and like really bothered me. And I was shocked to not see it in more reviews uh, that, that this part of the movie yeah. – you know, the part where the, the chieftain just tries to like, – oh, it was, it was just so bad. I, it, it, I, I even read another review uh, of, of someone whose voice I typically agree with and, and trust, and this reviewer actually liked the sequence um, really? and didn't point out any of the racially problematic aspects of it, which, Pete, as you mentioned, are, are pretty obvious and, and plain-faced. Um, I'm glad it's but- not just me that's seeing this there. Like, I'm glad it's not just me. No, 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 no. You're absolutely right about that about that section. I mean, I wonder. Let me me offer up a couple things, not necessarily uh, defenses, but slight somewhat explanations for what's going on here. One is that the movie structure overall uh, is fairly episodic. It's not entirely so in that, you know, sequences that happen early on factor again later on into the movie in pretty significant ways. But like the whole um, a big market sequence, the virtual reality thing, um, the the job of the hut character who sounded like he was voiced by John Goodman, but might not have been. Um, he doesn't show up again. So that's the episodic aspect of the movie. Um, and again, like this whole adventure in Darky Town is is uh, is quite episodic and like, you know, provides for a tone shift to the movie and uh, all these other things. So there's that going on. The other thing that's worth throwing out, Pete, is you, you use an interesting phrase, which is that um, you don't understand how they uh, you know, thought to include this or something along those lines. And, and we know that the author is dead here at overthinking it, but yeah. uh, Luke Besson is alive and well. He's an auteur, uh, in, in one of the few Hollywood auteurs left working in the business. But perhaps more importantly than just sort of his, his track record as an auteur is that we know specifically, right, this movie, he got independently financed in such a way that prevented a studio from giving him notes. <laughs> so right. he had total creative control. Yep. Over this, so the author in this case is not quite dead. Uh, he is still uh, somehow, you know, uh, in, exerting his influence in this very, very peculiar that's way. That's not what the author is dead means, but I know what you're saying, right? Uh, because the author is dead means that in the interpretation, the intention of the author, sure. is yeah, 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 yeah. But what, but what you're saying is that well, because he also dedicated it to his dad, and that's what led me to think that this was a story he must have really liked as a child in a time when the sensitivity to what it means would have been less pronounced in the culture because we're probably talking about like 40 years ago. And also less pronounced in, in him being a child, right? Yeah, that's true. Because because you can watch this sort of thing happen in an old Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny cartoon and not really be bothered by it because you don't really understand what's happening. Uh, and, and, and that might sort of be part of what's going on, I guess. But yeah, he dedicated to his dad. And he it, this was this movie was Luc Besson's Austin Powers. I think where because because Austin Powers was the movie that Mike Myers made to deal with his to like sort of 
I don't know if it's deal with his dad's passing or what, but it was Austin Powers was, I think, a character that it was based on his father's imitations of James Bond or fondness for James Bond. Uh, and that's why the Michael Caine character is in there. And it's about sort of processing the pop culture that you consume as a child with your parents and with your father specifically. And it seemed like this movie was kind of similar to that. Uh, but I totally hear what you mean. I also think that thematically it does play into what happens in the rest of the movie, but it's a reach. It's a real it's and it's it's um make make that reach. Okay, so so I'll tell you what I think the movie is about thematically, and this is also part of why its economic critique doesn't work, because the movie is not materialistic, and, and it is a it is a Luc Besson movie, as and you're right that he is an auteur, and he as in he he wants his own stamp on everything. And I feel like that Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets has a very similar metaphysics, moral metaphysics, to The Fifth Element. And it's mentioned a couple times. Uh, the, the Downton Abbey moment for me, it, which is also sort of an inexplicable scene that I loved was in the movie, is when they're finished with the big market interdimensional chase scene. Do you remember the old, like, pseudo-Midwestern European couple who, like, go to the thrift shops and buy uh, uh a trumpet with a horn on it and they're so happy to be shopping and where they're sort of making fun of the people who yeah, are on vacation. The fat, the, the ugly Americans. Exactly. The ugly Americans. Although I think they might've had some sort of accent that might not have been American. I wasn't sure. Space Americans. I don't know. But, but the, the woman says, Oh, this stuff is so great. It's going to be so useful. And the man says, useful. And, and this, he questions it because it looks like junk. And, and she said, well, it's ornamental. And what, what are, and she, she accuses him of not being civilized. And I felt like this, this conversation has to do with a lot of what's happening in the movie, which is the idea of beauty as, as related materially to the substance of the universe, which is also what the fifth element, that is the, that is what the fifth element is, is that Lilo is the fifth element. She, that this. Wait, woman, wait, 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 Lilo, uh, Lilo is a Hawaiian girl. Oh, okay. Sorry. Lilo, Lilo, I think. Lilo. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I get them. I get them mixed up. I, 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 sorry. I don't mean to be like Dave Letterman at the Oscars. <laughs> Lilo, Lilo, Uma, Lilo, Uma, Oprah. So, so for those who haven't seen the fifth element, the idea is that there's this ancient Indiana Jones-esque space artifact, uh, which they have to like, they have to deal with in order to stop an apocalypse. And it is powered by five elements. And those elements are, I believe like earth, wind, fire, water, and then the fifth element, which is Lilu, the uh, mysterious kind of, uh, she speaks a sort of unknown language and she's very exotic and, and she's this sort of precious, but powerful and, and female and kind of socially, uh, socially uh, iconoclastic kind of person, and the movie is about this sort of, f you know, fire in a bottle kind of person. This she's she's an Ubermensch, as it were. She's she's somebody who surpasses the contemporary moral law and, and goes through to some sort of transcendent, greater understanding of what it means to be human. Although she, it's sort of a uh, there's a sort of past element of it rather than a future element of it. And Bruce Willis is sort of the grounded cabbie that takes her on this quest, and and so she is necessary to balance out the universe, which opens up. The idea that all these qualities that Lilu ex expresses, which are, and this is the interesting thing about this is that it's in a movie. These are qualities that are essential to movies. You know, beauty, energy, love, hope, courage. Right? They, these are these are intrinsic to the nature of stories. And uh, if you want to sort of close the gap between the nature of stories and the nature of reality, as a lot of artists do in sort of venerating the notion of art and, and sort of spiritually connecting with the universe, you see things like beauty as as being metaphysical. And I believe that that's what uh, Valerian and the City of Thousand Planets is doing as a Luc Besson project. And, and the talk about the the horn the trumpet with a honker on it being useful because it is civilizing because it is ornamental and all of those three things being the same and then you think about like useful civilizing ornamental and then you think about the pearls as the cornerstone of the indigenous genocided alien economy right there's these pearls and the pearls defy uh the law of conservation of matter because you feed them to an animal and then the animal poops out a thousand of them and then those pearls have tons of energy and the pearls can power the entire ecosystem and economy of a planet but they're also beautiful, and they make the people beautiful who use them. And so far from the idea of 
like a Marxist would critique this as a false consciousness, this notion that the beauty of physical objects is intrinsically linked to like the dignity of the proletariat or the po- or or of the sort of the that is intrinsically linked to any sort of post-capitalist utopia. It, it necessitates beauty as a means of exchange. That that would be something that a Marxist would want to dispense with, because it, beauty is something that's more conservative and more aristocratic. But Luc Besson sees beauty as both metaphysical and also democratizing, because in its own way, like everybody can access. And and it, and it sort of brings power out of institutions and puts it in individuals. And so I don't know. I think that big hat that Laureline was wearing on her way to have her skull cracked open with the big crack crack crackers was both uh, beautiful and ornamental. Uh, yes, and also civilizing. Yep, and that's how it all fits together. Because, I mean, it's, because it's, in that civilizing, it, things that are civilizing, right, are things that like uh, are things that sort of paper over that put like the thinnest of veneers over our animal nature, right? And that's like well, that's your interpretation of what civilizing is, right? Well, that's the difference between civilization and savagery, right? Like you, you, <laughs> the 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 continuum goes from like animals to you know, I suppose the like the maesters in the citadel. On the other hand, though, I don't know, the maesters in the citadel are are pretty. Uh, 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 their food doesn't look all that great, but the um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know what I'm saying, right? Like the point, the point of it, I, I would argue that that hat is civilizing because it disconnects, uh, it sort of masks the the. Um, the, it's like a platter of oysters, right? It kind of masks the fact that these were that these were beings at at some yeah. point, and just you know, uh, all all you get is the business end of Laureline's head. Yeah. So that, and I agree with you in the sense that I feel like that whole sequence is the flip side and the wrong way. It's showing you the wrong way to align all of the symbols and themes of the movie. Because when you think about Clive Owen, the capitalist scapegoat, as having a giant space fleet and blowing up the Mui planet, which has the beauty fueled economy of plenty and joy. Who of those two is more civilized? Clearly, the Mu people are more civilized in the in the way that if if you think civilization is is a compliment, is a nice thing, is a good thing, and also if you think ornamentation and beautiful ornamentation is civilizing, then you would think that the Mu is it Mu or Mui, uh, whatever it is, Mool. It's something mule. like that. Mule or mule. It's actually pronounced inconsistently mule. throughout the movie. <laughs> Some, sometimes it's mule, sometimes it's mule. Uh, but but um, sure, they're they're more beautiful. But but to a certain extent, they. I don't know. They they are a like magical uh, magical good savages, right? Because like yeah. the emphasis on like the the civilization is sort of predicated on not having technological advancement or economic development, uh, really of any kind of kind of staying at a particular level that they call like harmony with nature, you know, and like the giving the pearls back and like the it's you know it's really right sized. You can say that their that their enterprise is right sized with a lot of just in time elements. <laughs> to the, you know, um, to the uh, to the organizational structure, right? Like yeah. ju- just in time, you uh, you poop out the pearls, but. Um yeah, you know, I, I, right. the, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, I, my point is, I think, I think that that what what's going on in terms of the idea of civilization in the film as a whole is uh, a little bit incoherent. But like, it doesn't have yeah. a consistent ethic of of what it makes. But this doesn't detract from the point that I, I sense that you're on your way to making. Yeah. So the so the reason that the movie has good savages and bad savages is to dislocate the notion of being civilized from the paradigm of like industrial and pre-industrial or colonizer and colonized and to uh, and to locate being civilized with having a certain uh, uh, kind of rarity of experience, not rarity, but kind of profundity of social organization. Like, I don't think we're supposed to think that the mule people are are less technologically advanced because the pearls have many, many megatons or megavolts or whatever megawatts of power in them. And so, oh, they have a really advanced technology, but it takes the shape of a natural uh, non-technology, something you know. So, it's, so it's it's trying to confound this idea that when by the spaceships being really ugly and the natural environments being really beautiful, but also when you think about Alpha, the city of a thousand planets, having natural environments that have been painstakingly created by artificial means, this is all trying to sort of turning the axis in the fifth element direction, of of like we want to root for the beautiful person. And, and so if you think of it as beauty as nourishment, 
beauty as and as economic nourishment, as social nourishment. Uh, that that Valer- the relationship between Valerian and Laureline is that like Valerian needs Laureline, and her beauty and her character are kind of the same and are united, and that they need to sort of support each other. And then you think about how Clive Owen is kind of as an ugly heart, even though he has a beautiful shoulder pad, right? <laughs> and, and he's unnourished. Um, and, and this idea that that uh, the law is in conflict with with sort of the providence of this beauty to people. Um, that that having a scene in which Laureline's beauty is literally objectified to the point of it being food, like it is a consumable. That, that Laureline is beautiful, that she's going to be eaten because she is beautiful. Uh, that that is the contrast against the pearls, which you know, it's a fire that it's a bush that burns without being consumed. There's a transcendent power to it that is beautiful and divine in, in some respect, and also civilizing and civilized. Um, and so that's where I was following the movie. But then it all, but so so it's like, oh, it's all these different sort of instances of people finding some sort of nourishment in kind of beautiful, true things. And then this is the period in which we flip that on its head and show the bad ways in which people exploit nourishment, like Rihanna being or exploit beauty as a food rather than as a spiritual nourishment or a social nourishment. And so, like the pearls feed your soul, but you don't eat them. You don't eat the the converters. You like make them. You take care of them and you love them, and then they provide for you. Uh, and and so Rihanna is being exploited by Ethan Hawke, which is a really strangely underexplored part of her character, where it's like, if I leave, he's going to kill me. Really? He just seems to play piano. He doesn't seem to do anything. Uh, but apparently he's an evil pimp. We don't know. Uh, but Rihanna is an exploited but he's artist. Al- he's also like his, he's an evil pimp, but his, like, his spirit is sort of depleted by his work. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, evil, yeah. p- evil pimping really takes a toll on the, pimping you know. Pimping is not easy. Let me tell you that. Pimping is not easy. Pete, Pete, would you say that uh, that it's hard out there for a pimp? <laughs> I don't know what you've heard about me, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> but so you know, I don't know. <laughs> did Ethan Hawke get held at gunpoint to make this movie? <laughs> like, what happened? <laughs> did that magnificent it's, it's, money, magnificent seven money, just not trickle in in sufficient? <laughs> I hear that, guys. I hear that in space, no one can hear you, pimp. Yeah, <laughs> I guess they can see it though, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. Hey, while we're talking about this, um, let's dig into a little bit about this whole notion of Rihanna's character, character being the greatest artist of all time, apparently, <laughs> right? And also about how she wants to do Shakespeare and quote French poetry and all this kind of stuff. Like, how does that figure into this notion of beauty as nourishment and uh, and that sort of thing? Well, the well, the thing about the the all the stuff that she knows, Shakespeare, things like this, these are things that she has, you know, learned at gunpoint, more or less, as she is being, uh, you know, enslaved and and trafficked for stripping. Is it really stripping if you're if you in your natural form, your species has no clothes on? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Meta- metaphysical. Because- another metaphysical yeah. question. This film doesn't yeah. answer. Right. <laughs> the, some of the reviewers call her a burlesque performer, but I feel like burlesque in general is more pr- empowering than what she's forced to do in this movie. Uh, but anyway, continue, continue. Yeah, I mean that's well, the, that's sort of the point of it, right? Like, yeah. um, but the uh, yeah, the the um, you know, she she learned all of these things. It's like a sort of courtesan's education, right? Like she learned all of these things to increase her desirability to what we are presuming will be her target. Uh, uh, her target demographic, right? And that, like, uh, she, uh, you know, she. All, so all these things are sort of, all these things are sort of instrumental. They are, they are ornamental, right? In the sense that they are, they are sort of ancillary to the to the actual business being transacted. But they make the business. Uh, you know, they make the business more pleasant. Um, they they increase a, a certain kind of utility uh, that's not necessarily, you know, that's not necessarily the kind of utility that we're most concerned with all the time. The same way, you know, the same way that a painting on the wall is not like it doesn't hold up your roof better if the painting is on the wall, but it it does ennoble uh, it does ennoble the wall. Um, I, I suppose, depending on depending on what the uh, depending on what the painting is, um, the the yeah the the Rihanna the whole 
the whole thing, the way in which the underlying, uh, you know, economic and political structures that lead to Rihanna being where she is go unquestioned in this film. Like, let me tell you about your weak ass critique of capitalism. I'm just, uh, I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, the like, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is. Uh, Rihanna is enslaved by Ethan Hawke. And that is, uh, you know, that's, yeah. that's rough. Oh, she's also an illegal immigrant. Let's not forget that. Right? <laughs> she comes out, she says those words, which is it definitely the message, right? <laughs> um, I, I, one thing to note about, about uh, Valerian calling Bubbles, is that the name? Bubble, Bubbles? yeah. Bubble, uh, the greatest artist Bubbles ever. Bubbles is the name of Michael Jackson's chimpanzee. Okay. So <laughs> it's we're, we're Lilo Bubble. and Bubbles. Is <laughs> um, so Bubble, by calling Bubble the greatest artist of all time, what it feels to me is that, well, first of all, it feels, it, it's more and more feels like this movie is sort of a spiritual reboot of the fifth element rather than an adaptation of the Valerian comics in that it takes the place of the opera scene, the, the opera divas, the impossible diva opera, which has played to such wonderful effect in the fifth element and has this idea that, Oh, in the future people will be much better at singing. And it, like, it's like when we expand into space and humans and aliens get to know each other, there will be like great beauty and, and new skills and we'll keep getting better and we'll have to do it in ways that we don't really recognize. We won't just just have better rotary phones we'll have space phones uh, we'll just be able to talk to each other but so like singing is so much better and i feel like rihanna's performance was supposed to be that in this movie and i sort of felt like if her burlesque performance were not just a series of 90s music video costume changes done through like much more technologically advanced means that that it could have if if her performance had actually been on that level instead of being like not good enough for a Rihanna video, um, that it would have made it all make Mike a little bit more sense. We got to talk. You can't do this and not talk about sex or not talk about like romantic. This film is like a romantic uh, thing, right? Like, because part yeah. the, the defining characteristic of Rihanna's character in this movie is that she's sexy, right? Like that she's desirable, and then she like blue tentacles his brain and realizes that what he really wants is Laureline, so she turns into that shape and you know tries to to plant one on his kisser, and that's like you know this is this is the thing, but she doesn't. There are no uh, there are no stakes to this, right? Like the. Uh, um, and, and and it's in like it's all over the uh the fifth element right like is is corbin are, are corbin and lilu going to sleep together in the you know sleepy pod on the spaceship uh no they're not because he's going to get you know mind raid and have to you know he's gonna fall over right like that this is a constant you know what i mean this is a a constant thing and his sort of process his process of education like uh going from like uh let's say late post adolescence into early adulthood emotionally to the point where he can sort of be vulnerable and be a partner to a uh you know be a be a a, a relationship partner be a sexual partner to to woman uh which you know um, has its has its apotheosis in the regeneration pod, where the uh, president of the galaxy looks in, watches them doing it, and says, "Let's give them another couple minutes." Um, the uh, <laughs> or was it Ian Holm who looks in and says, "Let's give them another couple minutes." Anyway, right? Like that that none of this none of this is. It's it's almost bizarre how for for a movie where a romance is l- presumably like the central emotional stakes of the movie, like what w- w- how bizarrely sexless, how how uh, juvenile it it feels in mm. terms of its its treating these things. And and here's the thing: like, is Rihanna's character is Bubbles a sexual threat? Right? Does she threaten Valerian's fidelity to Laureline? Does she, you know, there's all this. Uh, it's not all that sexy, she, but she's supposed to be kind of oozing sexiness. Um, and it's. Uh, 
and he doesn't really respond to that at all. Not even to say like, Hey, maybe another time, baby. The, you know what I mean? Like, and, and this is supposed to be a yeah. guy. This is supposed like, to oh, be, Oh honey, I'm good. I could have another, but I probably should not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, you know, and this is a guy who has like, uh, so many digital notches in his digital bedpost or so many yeah. tracks on his digital playlist. And like, by the way, a playlist is something that you revisit over and over and over again like a playlist is something for the 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 convenience of you know revisiting your your favorites and like does it is there like is that like a vr playlist like i, I don't even want to really think <laughs> about two letter two word phrase for it which we're not going to say on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's like so so valerian and the black mirror is not the movie that we saw <laughs> it's just but like the, a you know, look at how technology is destroyed human relationships right um the but the, but, the yeah. you know the whole thing and then like at the end just to, just to sort of talk about it as a as a spiritual reboot like at the end of the movie you know um the uh, uh a number of things are worse than they are in the fifth element um a the the uh struggle that that Bruce Willis goes through to kind of articulate his vulnerability and love feels earned over the course of the movie and um it also lines up at a moment where it's important in the emotional arc and it's important in the plot with you know the the meteor hurtling down at at earth right um this uh neither of those things is uh, neither of those things is true, right? Like, trust me to return the uh, to return the the uh, anti conservation converter, of, right? Yeah, the anti conservation of matter pearl pearl pooping seahorse rat to uh, <laughs> you know um, to the it's, thing that poops all over thermodynamics is that what you're talking about? <laughs> uh, to the people has nothing to do with do you love me there's nothing that at that moment has particularly brought valerian to the brink of that um like it's you know uh and it's it just seems um not even schematic uh because it's not that well thought out so you know i don't i i don't know like the fact that that even at, like it, it even fails at the level of sexual exploitation is what i'm trying to say <laughs> so this is an interesting opportunity to start talking about the relationship between valerian and laureline which is tricky <laughs> which which is picked up already in progress without a ton of understanding and i don't actually mind that that much so again if you didn't see the movie you might expect that it's that this is the point in which the two cops meet it's not you might expect that one of them is sort of the rookie and one of them is the more senior cop that's not true either one of them outranks the other nope. but they both have been what's up yeah nope <laughs> and and you might expect that this is a movie where they fall in love and it's not. <laughs> what it is is that it's a relationship between two coworkers who have – I think we're supposed to believe might have had some slip-ups in the past where they made out or hooked up. right? Either that – that's the only way that I can accept Valerian's constant sexual harassment of Laureline is if they like have a pre-existing sexual relationship that was consensual and, and, like, uh, and that they have that kind of relationship already because if the whole movie – is Valerian hitting on Laureline and at the end she's just so emotionally exhausted by everything that happens that she has sex with him. That's like, that's really hard to take. Now, maybe that's what the movie is actually saying, but I'm trying to find a way to interpret it. That it's a little kinder and also perhaps a little bit more French because I have to remember that this is not a movie that's made with American sexual mores in mind. Uh, and this sort of American terror around sexual solicitation, uh, is somewhat different. Uh, right. Um, I, we like, should, we should say the current American terror, right? The or the, you yeah, know. as opposed to historical, which is also different. <laughs> um, but like, but I'm, what I'm saying about it, and not to say that it's more to say like I don't feel qualified to speak to French workplace romance. <laughs> like I imagine it's probably different than American workplace romance or American workplace sexual harassment. <laughs> like I don't know. I I have the sense that I'm looking at a culture that's not mine, and I'm trying to be nice to it. But like, I mean, do you guys get the sense that like at some point they're on the road together for years in the space road even? So they're probably traveling for like weeks or months uh, with nobody else around. They're both like young and attractive and physically fit people. Laureline seems like 
pretty capable of taking care of herself, very capable of making her own decisions. She's not a child. Uh, and, and like, and, and the other thing is that Valeria doesn't come off as older than her, which he is. The actor is. But the and I think the character is supposed to be. But I, but for me, the guy who played Valerian came off as so young. And part of this was like his sort of confusion and unfamiliarity with sexuality. Like what you saw, Matt, as like very uh, as, a, as a sort of uh, confounding uh, lack of picking up on Rihanna's sexuality in the stripper scene. I took as like a like man boy who had like not experienced feelings like this before right like he comes off like he's like 22 and, and he's really supposed to be like 30 i guess i don't know but like uh i did i i, I was able while watching the movie to somewhat reconcile the relationship as like Laureline has given valerian reason to believe that they actually are going to have like an ongoing romantic relationship like that, that that has to have been something that predates the beginning of the movie. And the movie is them sort of negotiating what the nature of that relationship is going to be if it is going to exist. Uh, and the end result is that Laureline's like, well, it's going to be sexual. <laughs> and that's like the end of the negotiation. Uh, that like uh, it starts out being like, well, you know, we can't we really care about each other and we support each other. We're good coworkers. We value each other. I value you for your work as well as for your body and your mind. Like Valerian routinely defends Laureline's competence and intelligence to other people, gives her important jobs to do, you know, like like insists that she guards the converter rather than anybody else, respects her to operate on her own. He doesn't like let her run point on missions, which is, again, a little bit of sexist dynamic, but you don't get the sense that Valerian only wants Laureline for her body. But he also he also outranks her, right? And, like, he has a, yes. he has a uh, commissioned he has officer. A well, yeah. yeah, and he has a commissioned yeah. officer's rank, and she has a an NCO's rank, right? And yes, that, exactly. So, I, I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't know about the actual, you know, uh, system of ranks in the space gendarmerie. <laughs> <laughs> but uh in, insufficiently glossed in that respect <laughs> really i think that i think that movie could have really used another long-winded exposition sequence <laughs> that goes into basic detail about ranks in the space gendarmerie because there weren't enough long-winded exposition sequences in this movie it's just Congrat- gotta put that up. congratulations Laureline, on making sergeant in the space gendarmerie you may upon several more years of service be permitted to major sergeant of the space gendarmerie but if you wish to advance to lieutenant in the space gendarmerie you must come back and attend space gendarmerie officer training school officer yeah officer candidate space officer space candidate space school by, by the way space uh, sergeant uh Laureline, it is okay for your major to keep a uh, a a file on the network drive which you share with him which is <laughs> women i've slept with dot doc x okay so he'd be fired just for that like pretty maybe not in france but in america for certain yeah. he'd be yes. fired at, I, not okay I mean, two, no, like, okay. two, like two things. This would like, you know, even even the most uh, basic online, you know, bullshit 45 sec, 45 minute, uh, uh, you know, online course of of minimal sexual harassment training compliance. Right. Would tell you that a lot of what goes down in this movie is not OK. It's not uh, OK. <laughs> but I, I think wanted it, it to be OK. I wanted it to be better than Dunkirk <laughs> in its I, own way, but it wasn't. I it think, was so bad. I think it's a uh, it's it's a um, it's a testament to some of these uh, to some of the great accomplishments of this film that 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 is not even near the list of top five political problems <laughs> that, that, that like vastly outranks her and uses his position to have sexual relations with her and to constantly bombard her with images from his own sexual past yeah. in an inappropriate way that puts pressure on her to perform in her workplace. Yes, none of this is okay. I tried. I really wanted to give Luke Besson benefit of the doubt on this, but it's just not okay. It's just not oh terrible 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 and the space stripper is like worse than that <laughs> and, then the, and then the, like the the like doctor the, the space the space, the space stripper indentured servant illegal immigrant is worse than that the yeah. the yeah the the sort of doctor who level uh savage polynesian uh you know fat samoan aliens right like are are worse still 
worker human trafficking happening inside the UN. And Valerian's response is to like Jack Bauer the situation by offering to negotiate on her behalf. It is not to like call the rest of the space police down and shut down the clearly illegal space sex slavery ring that is operating like next to the prime minister's freaking office. Like what is going on in this movie? What is happening? Like there's Valerian has a big speech at the end where he's like, I respect the law and I have to follow regulations. And, and he says to himself, but I turn the other way, you know, and I need to get a little something, something. It's just, it's just, uh, you could tell why I had such strong feelings about this movie. This movie was, and Laura Lee's name should have been in the movie. Laura Lee's name should have been in the title right. of the movie. Should have been in the title of, uh, the, of the film. the best part of the whole movie. That performance by, by the Enchantress uh, from the Suicide Squad. From Academy Award winning Suicide Squad. Yes. Oh my and, God. and I'm only saying it's Cara, right? Cara, Cara Delevingne. I should learn how to I, say I think that's right. Yeah. I feel like she's going to make another movie that's going to be awesome because she's great in this movie. I think that she did a great job in this movie. I really enjoyed watching her. I saw a lot of criticism, but I thought that she did a really great job of of creating a, a female action hero character that to me felt credible to the contemporary feminine millennial experience and the sort of did and the sort of relationship of millennial women with institutions and power and especially like uh, professional millennial women with the sort of the sort of the hostility that was also sort of tempered by experience uh, I, I just I just really thought there was a lot of nuance to her performance of Laureline that was like almost entirely wasted on this movie <laughs> I would love to see and and whatever she was forced to do in Suicide Squad like nothing like the capability with creating a pop culture character that she seems to show in this movie is even like a little bit present in suicide squad. So, I mean, I know she's, she's not like a super great actress. She's still very young. Uh, yeah, she's got, she's a model, right? She's in her twenties. She's a model. Yeah. And that's, but, but I think we can, I can, we can take heart in that, that the quality of the products she's associated with, the projects she's associated with seems to be showing something like an upward trajectory. Yes. <laughs> Certainly an intelligence and an under, and an artistic voice that she's working on. Mm. So I'm excited to see what she does in the future. All right. We may, we may have to leave it there. Uh, so it's, uh, it's time for us to uh, float away in the Apollo pod of, of uh, the overthinking of podcast. Um, <laughs> Matt, Matt, I just said that I'm excited to see what she's going to do in the future. And she just- <laughs> She's in space in the future. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> Thanks very much to Pete Venzel and to Mark Lee for uh, podcasting with me. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Matt Rather. Listen to us next week on the Overthinking It podcast. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.